chapter 9, we arrive and the appointed day has come and the Jews are given the opportunity to fight back against anybody who tries to kill them and kill the Jews did. And let me say, the Jews turn out to be really good at killing. So good that if we don't read carefully, we, I, maybe you, could be lured in to thinking the way of the jungle is the way to live. The king is so astonished by that day of killing that he comes to Queen Esther, and I presume, this is just your friend talking, but I presume, kind of, I don't want to get in the way of the steam train that is my wife, Queen Esther. And he says, listen, whatever you want, you can have. And she goes, great. Given whatever I want, give me another day of killing. Really strange. And so he grants it. Okay, day two. Kill all you want. And they did. And they kill a bunch more. 75,000 people in all, the Jews kill. The genocide has been flipped on its head. And in fact, even just inside the gates, uh, inside the gates of the king, and for those of you who've ever been to Europe and seen one of these, you know, guarded palaces, you, you get the feeling of how well they were protected, these city walls. Well, even inside the gates, 800 of the king's staff are killed. Warriors, I mean, trained killers. And the Jews come at them. Are we all animals? Are we all animals sharpening our teeth and claws and stocking up on cannonballs? Living like nobody knows that you can't have love and live by the law of the jungle. This is where we pick up the story today. If you're there already, look with me in the text at chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, calling on them to celebrate an annual festival for these two days. He told them and break these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts and food to each other and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies. These are three keys, relief from their enemies. When their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. So the Jews accepted Mordecai's proposal and adopted the annual custom. If we fast forward and dip into chapter 10, we see the conclusion. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout his entire empire, even to the distant coastlands, his great achievements, and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself, and he was great among the Jews, who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all his descendants. And so this two-day war concludes. Mordecai calls all the people of the kingdom to celebrate and commemorate the victory. And the commemoration would be that of relief from their enemies, sorrow turned to gladness, and mourning turned into joy. 
And, and to be fair, to be fair, to be fair, to be fair, if you know, you know. They show a, a pretty large measure of restraint and even goodness in the midst of the war. The, the text that I, for the sake of time today, uh, forgive me, I, I'm skipping over a few sections, but it's there for you. For the sake of time, I've skipped over that. But, but nonetheless, in the midst of war, they didn't plunder anything. One of the decrees, or the second decree, said that one of the things they could do in the annihilation of anybody who attacked them was take their stuff. But they didn't. The text says they left all the stuff behind. And then at the end of this, they celebrate the good of his people and they speak up for the welfare of descendants. I think a reader could be, and maybe even should be, led to see this as a bit of a new world order of goodness and peace being established, right? God's people win out. It's, it's kind of, you know, the Disney villain is impaled on a spike. And in fact, we find out all 10 of his sons were too. They hunt them down and they put them on spikes as well. And, and the good guy wins, right? Eventually, enough good guys kill enough bad guys that the good will overwhelm the bad, right? Wrong. <laughs> right? I mean, like, we know enough history, even those of us who, who aren't history buffs or didn't study history or don't care about, like, we know enough <laughs> to know it's not gone great. We've had enough space and time in history to, to get a picture. Now, now, certainly one would forgive Mordecai. Mordecai feels like, hey, God has redeemed this. And, and even if he's not thinking God, because the text doesn't say he's thinking God, good has overwhelmed bad. Now, history tells us that, that the Babylonian captivity was then replaced by Persia. And then after that, the famed Alexander the Great. Anybody remember studying him in world history? Great guy, right? Super benevolent. Not so much, right? And after his early death, because he's got crazy division in his whole empire, there's five wars, basically rapid fire succinctly. I didn't even know they got a name. Anybody know they got a name? The Syrian Wars, which, you know, like, that seems fitting. Antichius, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Email me later. Um, Antichius came to power there in that span of time, and he was despised. And he causes an uprising and the Jews revolt against him and there's another power struggle and more death. And, and the story just goes on and on and on. An empire rises, they fight for power, they climb so much power that he's got to be taken out and he's taken out and we just see it happen over and over again. Maybe Ezra, who lived in the same span of time as this experience with Esther happens, said it best in his book, Ezra 9 in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 7. He says, we have been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced, just as we are today. Like it just keeps going on and on and on. And remember Jeremiah the prophet? Like, ooh, happy, happy, joy, joy. Like, this dude is a bummer. And he writes, Jeremiah has written 
Give or take, give me a little bit of grace here, uh, but give or take about 100 years prior to the time of Esther. Now, there's a, a little overlap, so it's like 120 to 80, but, but you get the point. It's lifetime before Esther, Jeremiah writes his prophetic book that they would have had good knowledge about Jeremiah's words. And he talks about Rachel watching her children go off into captivity, and it talks about Rachel's tears. But God responds in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. And catch this. This language is important, friends. For the Lord has redeemed Israel from those too strong for them. They will come home and they will sing songs of joy on the heights of Jerusalem. They will be radiant because of the Lord's good gifts. The abundant crops of grain and wine and olive oil and healthy flocks, their life will be a watered garden and all their sorrow will be gone. He goes on to say, I will turn their mourning into joy. A hundred years before the time of Esther and Mordecai, and then Mordecai declares a celebration where he says, we have gained relief from our enemies, Jeremiah. Our sorrow has turned to gladness, Jeremiah. Our mourning into joy, Jeremiah. Mordecai has got to have knowledge of this and got to feel like this is the fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah a hundred years ago. God goes on to say, I'll turn their mourning into joy. And then he calls Israel his darling child. I love that. It's like, that's a word lost on our generation. Nobody calls anybody darling anymore. Honey, can I call you darling? You know, I don't think so. I don't think she'll like that. I feel like it's like Grace Kelly, you know? Hi, darling. These people who consistently abandon God, who disparage his name, who beg for water at a rock, who leave him behind, who melt down gold to make a new God to worship. These people, those people, us people. To them and to us, God says, I cause the sun to light the day and I make the moon and the stars light up the night. I stir the seas. And in that same chapter of Jeremiah 31, he says, I am as likely to reject my people as I am to abolish the laws of nature. You see, God's promise of redemption that that Mordecai is experiencing and thinking in real time, this is the redemption of God. The promise of redemption brings relief and gladness and joy. But Jeremiah 31 goes on. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people, Israel. Sounding familiar? This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and I brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But in this new covenant, I will make with them People of Israel, after all those days, says the Lord, I will put my instruction deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And now it's going to get wonky. 
Verse 34. And they will not need to teach their neighbors. You should know the Lord for everyone from the least of the greatest will know me already. And I'll forgive their wickedness. And I will never again remember their sin. Right? This is incredible. This, this is, Mordecai thinks he's living God's redemption. He's just tasting the promise. And so often we have settled for the promise as if it's the real thing, but stopped short of living the actual redeeming work of Jesus. You see, in God's kingdom, pride has no power because humility will inherit the earth. In God's kingdom, when the vulnerable get exposed, God protects them and binds them up and heals them, Sarai. And in God's kingdom, children are celebrated, not ignored. And in God's kingdom, there is neither Greek nor Jew, nor slave nor free, nor man nor woman, for we are all one in Christ. Am I bugging you? I don't mean to bug you, says the great bottle. In God's kingdom, we are not subjects, we are heirs. In God's kingdom, deserters who return to the king get the keys to the kingdom. In God's kingdom, it is our souls, not our possessions, that are held most valuable. In God's kingdom, those who once had no identity as a people are now God's royal priests. In God's kingdom, we approach the throne of the king boldly, knowing what we will get is grace and mercy. In God's kingdom, when it's time for someone to die, Jesus raises his hand. This is the economy of our king. Let us never settle for a prior economy that just promises of peace and of goodness, but never delivers. All it does is lead to more death. You see, in Christ, the promise of redemption becomes the, pre the presence of redemption. The promise moves to the presence of redemption in Christ. And so you and me and we as a community, we're living in the borderland. We, we straddle this fence most of the time, at least, between a world where violence wins the day and coercion gets its way, and this other world where this peaceful hippie Jesus heals ears when the war starts and sits with the vulnerable and heals the young girl and says, hey, this will be our little secret. None of your friends need to know. It'll just embarrass you. This is Jesus. Like he sees to our souls. You got secrets? Welcome to the club. Jesus knows them and he sees them no more. And so at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he gathers his 12 disciples around the Passover table. Another physical manifestation of life at the borderland, right? I mean, for those who know the story of Passover, this is life at the borderland, right? Mark your door and just pray to God that the angel of death passes us over. 
life at the very borderland. And, and they come to the table with Jesus' 12 best friends, all of which will desert, all of which will lack faith. And Jesus gives them a new way to live, a new way to live in the kingdom that is now eternally available because of his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And so Luke writes in his gospel, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you, I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks for it. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves for I won't drink the wine again until the kingdom of God has come. And then he took some bread and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he broke it into pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine. And he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. I'm gonna invite you to take just a moment. Calvin and the rest of the team are gonna join us back on stage. and We're gonna come back and sing that song again, there is a king seated among us. And I invite you to take just a moment in the quietness of your heart. If you've uh, been interacting with your phone because you're using your program or, you know, whatever, you're checking NFL scores, uh, let me challenge you to just flip it over for a minute. Close your Bible and just prepare your heart and, and begin to wrestle with the question. Begin to ask yourself the question. God, where in my life are you inviting me to settle not just for the promise of redemption, but for the presence of your redemption? To invite your presence. Once we begin to sing the song, I invite you to come up and to uh, capture your elements and take them back to your seat with you. Don't take them yet. We'll, uh, we'll do it all together if you would. But um, as soon as you're ready and you've kind of prepared your heart, reflected as you desire, uh, come and grab the elements and then uh, I'll be back up in a moment.